Let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. You are probably all familiar with the adage, a person should not be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. According to this line of thought, if you're too preoccupied with thinking about heaven, you won't be of any use to people on earth here and now. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, responds to this kind of reasoning. He says this, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. We could summarize Lewis in this way. Being heavenly minded actually enables us to be of earthly good. Now, in our circles, we emphasize a lot about the kingdom of heaven being here and now. The new creation has already begun in uh, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The nations are already being discipled and becoming the kingdom of our Lord. God has actually begun his transforming work in history. A real change is underway here and now. And this is a good and right emphasis. Uh, Scriptures certainly teach this. But the Bible also teaches that while there is a sense in which the kingdom is already, there is also a sense sense in which the kingdom is not yet. Paul is here in our text in Galatians 6 reminding us not to forget the not yet aspect of the kingdom. There is a telos, a goal, toward which everything is heading. Paul is showing forth and emphasizing this future reality that should drive how we think and live in the present. He's both warning us and encouraging us in our present lives with the truth about what to expect in the life to come. I'll read again Galatians 6 verse 8. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. So what we believe about the future drives how we live in the present. Think about this. You wouldn't submit yourself to a strict diet uh, unless you believe that it would have some kind of benefit for your health in the future, right? Most of us would not spend all day laboring outside uh, in the yard if there were not some kind of discernible result or a payoff from that labor. Uh, for you musicians out there, 
You wouldn't spend hours and hours practicing your instrument if there wasn't some kind of future payoff of learning to play well. Likewise, what we believe about the future of all things, the goal of all history, matters for what we do now. Our eschatology informs our ethics. Think about it this way. If we believe all there is to this life is here and now, there's no future beyond our current temporal existence, if the dead are not raised, to quote Paul, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if Christ has been raised, and we will be raised, then our labor is not in vain, and we should abound in the work of the Lord. To put it in Paul's agricultural terms, what kind of harvest you want to reap should inform what kind of seed you should you should be sowing. If I sow tomato seeds in my garden, I should not expect a harvest of cucumbers. Likewise, Paul tells us if you sow to the flesh, do not expect to reap eternal life. We're all sowing in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. We're either sowing to the flesh or we're sowing to the spirit. In chapter 5, which Michael just read, Paul contrasts the flesh and the spirit, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the spirit, the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the spirit. And he says these things are opposed to one another. So what is sowing to the flesh? Well, the flesh represents the old Adam, the domain where sin reigns with its corrupt longings, corrupt desires. And Paul gives a list of these works of the flesh. He says they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul warns that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who sow to the flesh demonstrate that they belong to what Paul calls this present evil age, and they will perish along with it. So Paul gives us a warning in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Your actions have consequences. Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So what is Paul saying about the future here? He's saying judgment is coming. You cannot make a mockery of God and get away with it. So Paul warns the Galatians to not be deceived about this. Why would anybody be deceived about the consequences of the works of the flesh. This election season has especially put on display countless examples of our culture's fleshliness, hasn't it? Uh, I saw a, a video the other day where a woman was stopped in traffic and there were some people on one side of the road who were uh, had signs, they were promoting their presidential candidate. Uh, this woman dri- driving the vehicle uh, was apparently not a fan of this presidential candidate, to put it mildly, and she goes into a fit of rage over this. 
uh, against these political opponents of hers. So much so that she literally was hanging out of the window of the driver's seat, yelling obscenities, making these colorful gestures at her opponents. Um, And she was so caught up in this that she failed to see the car directly in front of her that was stopped. Uh, And she promptly crashed into the car in front of her that was stopped. Uh, And there happened to be two police officers parked right next to her who saw the whole thing. So sometimes there are immediate consequences for foolish actions, aren't there? But more often than not, there's a lag between our actions and the consequences that they bring. And this lag time, I think, explains how many are deceived about mocking God. In this life, we know there are negative consequences to sinful living, to be sure, but often these consequences manifest themselves over time. Movies and music that shape how many view reality tend to be really good at showing us how sin can bring pleasure in the moment, Uh, but frequently they do not show us the results of destruction that sin brings. They show the excitement of the party, but rarely the effects and consequences of addiction and destruction that it brings. They show the appeal of the affair, but rarely show the havoc that is wreaked on the spouse and the children and subsequent generations. The deception is thinking that gratifying the desires of the flesh will not lead to the consequences of corruption and destruction. You will not surely die. This is the deception from the beginning, right? The works of the flesh, Paul is telling us, destroys nations, destroys communities, it destroys families, it destroys individuals. The works of the flesh divide us, they tear us apart, they separate us from God and from one another. The life of the flesh is one of envy, devouring one another, tearing each other apart in anger and jealousy. And while these consequences manifest themselves in our human lives and in our society, Paul says that those under the dominion of the flesh will face an eternal condemnation under the judgment of God, an eternal consequence. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he reap. So if we believe this about the future, and we do, that God is not mocked, that judgment is coming, what are we to do in the present? What's the alternative? Well, Paul says, those who sow to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. What is sowing to the Spirit, and how can we do that? Before we can answer that question, we really need to consider Paul's larger argument in the letter. Paul's letter to the Galatians is written to a group of churches that he planted, who've been led astray by false teachers. These false teachers are demanding that the Galatians become circumcised and submit themselves to the Mosaic law in some fashion uh, in order to be declared righteous, in order to be uh, part of the family of God, in order to be part of the true family of God. And Paul's writing them to rebuke them for swerving away from the true gospel that he proclaimed to them. 
his explanation throughout the book pieces together God's plan of redemption found in the scriptures so that they can understand what exactly it is that God has done in Jesus Christ. Paul says that the good news of Jesus is the news that was preached beforehand uh, in God's promise to Abraham. And that promise was to make one united new humanity through the seed of Abraham who would inherit the world to come. That promise has now been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and by the sending of his spirit. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, In Adam's fall, all humanity was separated from God and divided from one another because of our sin. God promised a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, right? The serpent who had deceived them. And God maintained a godly seed line through Seth, through Noah, through others. And as human sin continued to spread, uh, the families of the earth were further divided from one another at Babel, at the Tower of Babel, where the Lord judged humanity and confused their languages. So in keeping with his promise to conquer the serpent through the seed of the woman, God calls out Abraham. He sets apart a family for himself who is marked by the sign of circumcision until the time came that he would ultimately deal with sin and death. He makes a covenant with this family. He gives them his law to show true wisdom and true righteousness. And the law functions as a kind of guardian for God's people until the true promised seed would come to conquer sin and death and bring about a new and mature humanity. So while the law was good, it could not bring about righteousness and life. Paul quotes God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. He says, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise that God gave to Abraham. And Paul interprets it this way. Through your seed, the blessing will come to the families of the earth. Paul says to the Galatians, the seed is Christ. The promised seed of Abraham is Christ who came to unite humanity in himself and to restore us back to God. And he tells us that the sending of the Spirit is the blessing that God promised to the families of the earth. So Christ comes and he takes on human flesh. He fulfills the law by being completely faithful to it. And he shows us what true love of God and love of neighbor really looks like. He was the faithful Adam where Adam had failed. He was the faithful Israel where Israel had failed. And in his death on the cross, he bears the curse of humanity and the curse of the law. Christ dies and rises again to condemn sinful flesh. And after his ascension, he says, I go to send another, right? He goes to send the promised spirit to those who have faith in Christ and are baptized into his body. So Paul tells us that by faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven, we're washed clean, we're no longer under a curse, we're declared righteous, that is accepted by God and made part of the true people of God, this new humanity, this one united man in Christ. 
God's now brought about a new creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just as God had delivered Israel out of Egypt from slavery and into a new promised land, so Paul tells us that in Christ there's a new exodus that has happened. We've been delivered from slavery to sinful flesh. We've been given the first fruits of a new promised land that we inherit, that we will inherit this world to come. The Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee of our future inheritance in the world to come. So Paul's warning the Galatians that going back to the Mosaic Law, going back to circumcision, going under Torah, is like going back into Egypt after God's already delivered you. He's saying going back uh, is to put yourself under the slavery of sinful flesh. Going back is cementing yourself in the old world, in the present evil age that is passing away. And it's also to cut yourself off from the new world, the new humanity that is uh, being realized in Christ. So those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. They've been united with Christ, Paul says. Those who are baptized are Abraham's true offspring, the members of the true people of God. Those who are united with the Son are now adopted as sons and have the spirit of the Son, the spirit of Christ, in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So the spirit of Christ is the promised spirit of righteousness, the blessing that God promised to Abraham. In other words, so the promise of Abraham is, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul says what that means is in Christ, the spirit of righteousness shall flow out to the nations to create and animate a new humanity, the church. The blessing, Paul says, is the spirit of righteousness. The families of the earth are joined together in Christ into this one new man, and they receive the blessing of the spirit. So I know that's a lot. That's that's sort of the broader context of what Paul's getting at when he's exhorting to sow to the Spirit. So what Paul is calling us to believe about the future is this. There's a new promised land coming. The whole world will be renewed and joined with heaven. There's a new heavens and a new earth that's coming. There's a glorious inheritance ahead. Eternal life with one another in communion with God. Those who sow to the Spirit will from the Spirit receive this future inheritance. So how do we sow to the Spirit? Well, now that we have been forgiven, we've been made alive together with Christ, Paul tells us that we're to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to march in step with the Spirit, to submit to the desires of the Spirit. This is, again, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of righteousness. His desires are the ones that are against the desires of the flesh. He is the spirit that we are to sow unto and from whom we'll receive this eternal life, eternal, this future inheritance. So then salvation, of course, is a gift, right? From beginning through the middle to the end. God graciously adopts us as his sons in the son. He gives us his spirit to transform us and works out his good works in us and ultimately rewards us with glorified eternal life. 
Paul says we will receive from the Spirit this eternal life. It's an inheritance, a gift. At no point can we say, I've earned this. So the Spirit of Christ bears fruit within us. And Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So these are fruits. Does that mean that we passively wait for God to automatically work this out in us? No. Paul says, so to the Spirit. This is not automatic. We have to walk in the Spirit. How do you walk in the Spirit? The same way that you learn to walk, one step at a time. By putting off the old man and putting on the new. Resisting sinful desires. What Eric talked about last week, killing the flesh, putting it to death, and putting on the new man, this new humanity, following the lead of the Spirit of Christ, living in accordance with your new identity in Jesus. Paul says, we have crucified the flesh. Okay, This is true of all of us. We've crucified the flesh, and yet we're still urged to resist the flesh. He says, we've been given the Spirit and His fruit, This is still true of us, and yet we still need to work out these benefits in our lives. Or as Paul says elsewhere, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's get more specific. The life of the Spirit is a communal life. It's a social life. Spiritual people are social people. And by that I mean they are building up this new humanity, the body of Christ. We aren't bearing these fruits in isolation from one another as individuals by ourselves. The fruit is displayed in our love for one another. Paul says in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 6, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So how do I walk in the Spirit? By doing good to all, and especially to the household of faith. And what are these good things that I'm to do? Paul says it's loving your neighbor as yourself. When the Spirit bears fruit in our lives through our love toward one another, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. Paul says we're to put a priority on doing good to the household of faith, that is the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as a father has a duty to put dinner on his own table before he starts uh, feeding those outside of his home, so the church has a duty uh, to take care of her own before taking care of the neighborhood. Jesus said that everyone will know we are his disciples by what? by our love for one another. In John 17, he says, the way that the world is going to believe that the Father sent the Son is through our love for one another, our unity in love. So pour your life out in service to your brothers and sisters. Pour your life out to your church. Give yourself in service to the church. Chapter 6 gives us a few more kind of specific examples of what this looks like, putting into practice the fruit of the Spirit. He says this in verse 1, that 
that sowing to the Spirit includes restoring brothers who are caught in a transgression. The spiritual ones, remember, that is those who have the Spirit of Christ, are to restore in a spirit of gentleness those who have been caught in a transgression. We all know that this side of heaven, we sin against one another, right? As we get closer to one another, we start to see uh, who, who, who we are and what sort of problems we have, and we sin against one another. Sowing to the Spirit involves confronting gently and forgiving our brothers and sisters for the sake of restoring them. Now, ordinarily, this looks like husbands and wives restoring one another. It looks like parents restoring children who sin. But it also involves us being close enough, getting to know one another enough to be able to admonish and correct one another gently. And at the same time, we're told to keep a watch over ourselves, right? Lest we be tempted. Sowing to the Spirit also includes bearing one another's burdens. The church is to be a community who builds each other up, helps each other along, supports one another when we have needs, praying for each other, giving to one another. And yet, Paul says we need to test ourselves and our work and bear our own loads. Sowing to the Spirit includes sharing good things with the one who teaches. This is another way of saying, pay your pastor, support the ministry, financially and materially. So these are just a few examples within this context of Paul showing us the social form that the fruits of the Spirit take. But they by no means exhaust the many good things that we are called to do to the church. Being led by the Spirit means listening to the Word of Christ. Paul says elsewhere that the Word of Christ must dwell in us richly. The way that that happens is through regular meditation on the Scriptures, it's through submitting yourself to the teaching and preaching of the local church. And it's through admonishing each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we're called to heed Christ's word and do good to the household of faith. But Paul also says that we're called to do good to all. So we mustn't skip over that part and quickly get to the household part. Just as Christ gave himself for the sake of the world... So the church, united as his body and filled with his spirit, should give herself for the life of the world. Doing good to all means doing good to your neighbors. Working out, working hard, excuse me, working hard and faithfully for your employers. Doing right by your customers in your jobs. Dealing justly in all your doings. Whatever you find your hands doing in the world doing it as a member of the new humanity indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. Now, sometimes this language can sound a bit lofty. New humanity, Spirit of Christ. And I'm not suggesting that sowing to the Spirit has to look like extravagant good works, right? One of my favorite parts in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is when the main character, he's walking through heaven, and he sees this glorious procession and there's this beautiful woman in the center of this procession who's surrounded by people children animals and the main character is trying to figure out who this who this is who was this famous person on earth and his guide who's walking with him tells him 
It's someone you've never heard of. He says her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. The main character responds. He says, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. And the guide says to him, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And he goes on to recount her life, how this woman led a quiet and unknown life, pouring her life out for her family, pouring her life out for her neighborhood. Fame in heaven and fame on earth are quite different things. Being faithful to the Lord in the duties he's called you to, however small or insignificant that they seem to the world, will reap a great inheritance in the life to come. So start where the Lord has placed you and be faithful there. Paul says we're to do these good things while we have opportunity. He's not saying do good when you have time for it or if you can get around to it, do some good. No, he's saying while we have opportunity, while we still have time left, let us give ourselves for the good of others. Now, we all lead busy lives, but Paul is saying we need to prioritize doing good to all and especially to the household of faith. God in Christ has poured out his life on our behalf that we might, that he might form us into one body who serves in the power of his spirit. While we have time in this short breath of a life, we need to be all in. Paul encourages us not to lose perspective when we're pouring ourselves out in service. Here again, Paul points to the future to provide perspective on the present. This time not in a warning, but with an encouragement. He says this in verse 9 of chapter 6, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. We will reap. There is a new creation coming. Yes, the Lord gives us glimpses of that new creation here and now, but the best is yet to come. Don't grow weary. A glorious inheritance is coming. We're used to instant gratification, aren't we? We get discouraged when we're not seeing immediate results. Paul's saying, be patient and keep at it. Don't give up. We have a glorious inheritance awaiting us if we persevere to the end. When you're in the trenches, when you're fighting against sin, when you're toiling day in and day out, look ahead. Be heavenly minded. Remember the glorious future that is coming. It will all be worth it. Are you weary? Maybe you're a parent in the trenches of child rearing, changing diapers, wiping runny noses, making meals day in and day out, disciplining, restoring little ones. That's sowing to the Spirit. Paul says, keep at it. There's an inheritance coming. Maybe you're taking care of a sick loved one or elderly in need. The day in and day out of ministering to those in need, that's sowing to the Spirit. Keep at it. An inheritance is coming. Perhaps you've been persevering through a hardship or some kind of suffering. Being faithful in your trials is sowing to the Spirit. Keep at it. There's an inheritance coming. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, 
We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God has united us together in his son. He's redeemed us from slavery to sin. He's given us the spirit of Christ to bear fruit that we may sow to the spirit in doing good to all and especially to the church. And we look forward to a glorious hope, an inheritance in the life to come. We're about to come to this table where Christ has promised to commune with us by his spirit. And in this meal, he strengthens us and builds us up into one body, nourishing us to persevere and continue to bear fruit. But this meal is also a foretaste, right, of the great wedding feast that is to come that will last for all eternity, an inheritance beyond all comparison. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.